Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. showed up. <laughs> he could have been anywhere in the world and chose to be with us, so thank you. Uh, my name is Corey Johnston. I'm one of the staff pastors. going to be your teaching pastor uh, for today, and so I'm excited uh, to get to do that, excited for today. I've been asked, you know, all, well, man, for weeks now, but specifically this last week, how do you, how do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? And there's like all these things that, that come to mind, and the thing that I just keep coming back to again and again is I just feel dangerous. Like I can't, if you don't know me, you know, if you don't know, you don't know. But if you know me, you know, man, I just, I don't view this as a building, but as another resource by which we get to blow another hole in the gates of hell. And I just feel dangerous, church. With every new volunteer, it's just another bomb to go off there. With every new missional community we start, it's another opportunity to keep them on his toes. With every dollar that's given to the mission, to this building, it's just another way to advance the gospel. Right? I want him to wake up. I just want Satan to wake up. I want his house to be like home alone. I want him stepping on rakes. I just want us everywhere. I want us everywhere in there. You know what I mean? And so it is just an opportunity for that. I just, I feel dangerous. I love it. I feel proud. The word that keeps coming to mind is just proud. Like, uh, not proud and negative prideful, but just proud of our people. We shut down for three weeks. No one batted an eye. No one said why. People just showed up. Hundreds of people have showed up over the last three weeks to help volunteer. We had a pastor reach out to someone. I think David, maybe Pastor David. Someone reached out to Pastor David. like, what if, what if you lose people? What if people don't come back? We're like, we're not even on that level, bro. Like, we don't even think like that. You know, if three weeks led people to leave, they were never here. You know what I'm saying? Three weeks out of 52, I think we're doing pretty good, yeah? I mean, you come out of COVID, you feel like we can do anything. I had a pastor I invited, I invited many of you, and so thank you for coming, many friends and guests. Most of you actually call Heights home, so that's incredible. Some of you are guests, thank you for coming. I invited a gentleman by the name of Pastor Sherman Smith, who those of you that are OG Heights will know, or if you're from the community, uh, you know Pastor Sherman Smith has Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church as his church. That's the church we met in uh, as Heights Church for a year and a half, started on Saturday nights and moved to Sunday nights. And so I invited Pastor Sherman Smith. I really was hoping he could come and pray over uh, the gathering for us today. And for many different reasons, he could not uh, come. Some are family reasons, some are uh, professional. He took a new pastorate, which is kind of fun. He's an incredible man if you know him. So he did say, Corey, I would, I would like to write a letter of address for your first Sunday. And I was like, oh, yes and amen. Thank you, sir, for that. So I'm going to read to you this short letter of address, and I think it actually sums up much of how I feel. And so it will not be on the screen. Let me read it over you. He said, Brother Corey, thank you so much for the personal invite. I would have loved to have been with you all this first day in the new building. 
How exciting to see God bring about what you envisioned many years ago. I have in my heart the words from the Apostle Paul from Philippians 1.6. I am certain of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. From the day we first met in my office and I heard your testimony and your heart for the Lord's work, I knew I wanted to be a part of it. I thank God for allowing me the privilege of being a small part of your beginnings as a church. May God bless you richly with his presence and provision as you grow into the future. And now, a word of warning for your congregation. Not that you have attained, or now that you have attained a long-awaited building, do not entertain thoughts of completion. Quote, we have reached our goal, end quote. No, you have simply completed one more phase of growth. This is a new beginning, a new phase. May God bless you with wisdom and discernment and the knowledge of his will for Heights Community in this newest phase of ministry. Blessed by you, Brother Sherman. Amen and amen. That's how I feel. I'm thankful and proud, dangerous, excited to preach. It's been five weeks. Let's see if I still can do it, huh? All right, here we go. You ready? Say ready. Here we go. All right, today we enter into a season of the church uh, that is called Advent. And so Advent, the definition that I would give for you if you're a note taker, is Advent means to wait or to long or I would even say to look forward to something that is out there. That's what it means to Advent. In many ways, we were in a season of Advent in light of this building. We waited for this building. We longed for this building. We looked forward to this building. Hopefully not just today, but far beyond today into the future. We were waiting, longing, looking forward to, as Christians, we advent, we long for, we wait for the second coming of King Jesus. For the original authors of uh, the Psalms for us today, they were in a season of advent. They were waiting, they were longing for this Messiah to come. We know him as Jesus, they just knew him as a promised Messiah. And so today is not just a first service in a new building, today is the first day of Advent. It's a season. It's not just a definition, but it's a season by which Christians all around the globe come together, millions and millions of Christians come together today, on this day, beginning now for the next four weeks, and we say, yes, we together are united in Advent. We are waiting. We are longing. God help us. We are craving this Messiah to come to us, to come back to us again. And so with that in mind, there are many ways that God will lead you to Advent. He'll lead you to long. He'll lead you to wait. He'll lead you to look forward to something better, to something more, to someone better, to someone more than yourself. And one of the primary ways that God will lead you to Advent is through suffering. God will use suffering to lead you to Advent. If you're used to heights, you know this only makes sense on our first Sunday that I would talk about suffering. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about this scripture specifically in my missional community this week on Tuesday. And one of the women uh, in my missional community is going through an incredibly tough time right now. She said, when things are good, I never go to God. But when things are bad, that's when I go. And I thought, dang, I can't believe she just said it out loud. Like, I don't even have to pastor her to get her there to see that. She just said it for free. It costs nothing. She got, is that not the most true statement, church? 
when things are going pretty good, like I don't have a need for Jesus because I got things unlocked. I'm good. I can trust myself, hope in myself, depend upon myself. I'm doing pretty, doing pretty good. But man, whenever things go bad, then what do we do? When things are difficult, what do we do? We say, well, now, Lord, now I need your help. Not when things were good, but now this is the moment in time that I need your help. Or perhaps we look and we say, God, where are you? Where have you been? Do you not see my affliction right now? See the suffering that has ensued upon me and my family? Where are you, Lord? Now we are even in that cry, depending upon someone greater than ourselves, yes? Suffering is God's way of revealing what you need. Suffering is God's way of showing you and showing me that we are finite. We're not infinite. Suffering is God's way of bringing you back to dependence, church. For were it not for suffering, some of you would never turn to the Father, myself included. It is through suffering that we are forced to advent. We are forced to long. We are forced to wait. It's actually through the longing and the waiting and the looking forward to that we're reminded in those moments that we're actually a people of hope. People of despair do not long, church. They do not hope. They do not look forward to by the very definition of the word despair. But people who advent, the people of God, even in the midst of suffering, we long, we hope, we wait because we know there's something better coming. There's someone better who is coming. So the big idea for today, if you're a note taker, if you're viewing online, thanks for tuning in online, is this. Suffering leads to advent. Suffering leads to hoping, longing, looking forward to someone, something greater. Three points by which I hope to take us there. You got to look back to look forward, first point. Second point is you need to stay a while. You need to stick around. Just sit in it for a bit. And the third point is you need to look ahead to the promise. Look ahead to the promise. You got to look back to look forward. You doing okay? Yep. All right, good. Me and Mike, I think. Brian. Brian, okay, cool. Somebody, I can't. It's Brian. <laughs> Let me remind you of the context. Look back to look forward. Point number one. Let me remind you of the uh, context. It's a wordy psalm for us to sit in. A short story is this. The Assyrians uh, have come along and they have literally steamrolled the northern tribes of Israel. So picture like whatever you heathens watch, The Last Kingdom or Vikings or whatever you're into on Netflix right now, hopefully not Game of Thrones. Picture something like that. Uh, and the Assyrians, right, they're just bad news bears. They're going to straight destroy every square inch of the northern tribes of Israel. That is what they were known for, right? You didn't mess with the Assyrians. You didn't want an Assyrian as an ex-girlfriend, right? She's showing up playing that Carrie Underwood song. You're getting a Louisville slugger to both headlights, you know what I mean? (laughs) The Assyrians were dangerous, for real. They destroyed everything. They would just obliterate, literally annihilate everything, and then they would burn it all to the ground so that you could never come back and have any part in what what you once had. They left everything barren. And so here in Psalm 80, that's important to understand what this psalmist is pleading for. Here in Psalm 80, the psalmist, if you can picture him, is kind of perched out on the side of a mountain, maybe on the top of a mountain, looking out there at northern Israel. And what he's seeing is just pillars of smoke coming up, not because he's basking in the presence of God, but because his brothers and sisters are literally being annihilated by the Assyrians. This is the heart of a man who is pleading for restoration in Psalm 80. Three different times, as a matter of fact, he's gonna plead that the Lord would turn and 
put his face, let his face shine upon them and bring restoration that they may in fact be saved. He's searching for hope. Even in the midst of this psalm, he is adventing something greater. Does that make sense? And so we start with Psalm 80 verse 1 says this. Uh, here at Heights, if you're new, uh, we don't have any tricks. We just preach straight through the text for you, all right? Psalm 80 verse 1, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. He said, do you hear me? You, you who led Joseph, you got to know a little bit about Joseph to understand the text, like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, those are the tribes, stir up your might and come save us. Verse three, what does it say? Restore us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Here in the Hebrew, let your face shine is the same as saying, God, show us your power. Show us what you can do. Here, verse one and two, the psalmist is recognizing this is who God is. You are the shepherd. We are your sheep. You are the sovereign. You set up on the throne of God. We are the ones who submit to you. You can bring hope, God, to an impossible situation. We saw it with Joseph. We know that you can bring hope to what's seemingly impossible. You are the great shepherd. You can lead us out of this situation. Whenever suffering comes, listen, when suffering comes, church, and it will, the common denominator in this room might not be Jesus as uh, your Lord and Savior, but it is most certainly that suffering will fall upon your family. Suffering will come, regardless of your religious affiliation. When suffering comes, you always have to look back, Christian, before you can look forward. You have to look back to the promises of God. You have to look back to the stories of God. You have to look back to seeing his sovereign hand playing out time and time and time again. And so we know that because it says, you are the one who led Joseph like a flock. You are the great shepherd. Now, if we had, I guess we do have time. We only have one service here. We don't have time to read all this. Genesis 37 through Genesis 50 take us about 40 minutes to read. Uh, we got the time. Kids would be a riot, but we got the time. Right? Small riot back there. Genesis 37 through 50 explains it all. I'll give you a quick summation. Joseph was the favored son um, of Jacob. Joseph's brother, short story, did not like that. They kidnapped him and they sold him into slavery, okay? So you can't date Assyrians and you don't want these dudes in your family tree because they're also dangerous. Joseph begins then to uh, interpret dreams. Uh, he begins through his interpretations, catches the eye of the Pharaoh, makes his way up to, let's say, the second in command, and he ends up saving Israel from a famine. Now, that's a lot of chapters summed up to about 45 seconds. In the midst of suffering, okay, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of betrayal from his brothers, mind you, he says this in Genesis 50. It will be on the screen. As for you, brothers, talking to his brothers who sold him, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so the psalmist here is looking back to the story of God's faithfulness as seen in Joseph's story. And he's saying, you are the shepherd, you are the sovereign. But he can't do that in this moment of time. He cannot find hope. He cannot properly advent if he doesn't look back to that promise. He has nothing to look forward to. He has nothing to anchor him in who Christ is and what Christ has done. And so I would say to you as a Christian, before you can advent properly, before you can properly hope, properly long, properly aspire and crave this Jesus to come back to you, you have to look back to his promises before you can ever look forward to know that he is going to be 
faithful. Let me ask you, church family, when suffering comes, who or what do you find yourself adventing in? To whom do you place your hope? To whom do you look to in those moments? Is it something or is it someone? The psalmist looks to the covenant faithfulness of the good shepherd. All he's saying is this, God, you've saved us before. You've saved us before from terrible situation. Do it again. Could you just do it again? You are the shepherd. You are the sovereign. You sit on the throne. God, just do it again. Restore us, O oh Lord. Just be who you are. We know this because verse 3 says, literally, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Church, this is a plea for salvation. This is a plea for restoration. This is a longing to see the face of God again and again. Show us your face. Show us your power. Just show off a little bit. That's what he's saying. You've done it before, God. Just show out a little bit more. Let's see you do it another time. The tribes now who were being obliterated by the Assyrians, I would say this, they did not pray this prayer. He's angry with their prayers, so we know that they're not praying this prayer, yeah? They advented, I would argue, if we can use that word, they advented, but they looked to someone different than him to save them. They looked forward to something else to be able to save them instead of looking to the one true God of creation. You could maybe even say that they were hoping and longing to be redeemed, but they did not look to the one true God of creation. Saints, do you understand that even your prayers can be done in sin and can reveal a longing for someone different than Jesus? Verse four says this, we continue four through seven. Oh Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? How long, O oh Lord, is a good prayer as well? Verse five, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink to full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. They're just being annihilated. Verse seven, what does he say again? One more time, we're in a much bigger room. No eight foot ceilings in here. I can't, can't touch them anymore, yeah? Verse seven, restore us, O oh God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. They found themselves in an advent the Assyrians did, but it was an advent that led to their conquering by the Assyrians. I would still continue to push and argue with you this morning that everyone is in a season of advent. Everyone is longing. Everyone is hoping. Everyone is desiring someone or something greater than themselves. Their prayer has revealed that they were not desiring this shepherd. They were not desiring this sovereign who sits on the throne orchestrating all things. And the psalmist, knowing what his brothers, and think about this, knowing what his brothers and sisters are doing, knowing their hearts, knowing their character, he still says, how long, O Lord? It's still a plea for them. Like, I know that they're not in sin. They're not even, they don't even know what to pray, Father. I know. And yet, here's the cry of this brother to his brothers, his brother to his sister, saying, but how long, O Lord, will you... Continue disciplining them in this way. These are your people. How long, oh Lord, do you know that it is okay sometimes to not have answers? That we have a God who can understand that you have prayers that sound like this. How long, oh Lord? God, you called us to this marriage. How long will we continue fighting? God, you called me to this job. How long must I suffer under the weight of this employer? God, you've given us these resources. How long, God, must we go on aspiring for more? 
We serve a God who is good and beautiful, yes? And he understands our longing for how long, God, how long? The Assyrians, they stopped looking to that God. They stopped crying out how long, and they just said, could you get us out of the situation? Enough with godliness in our character. Could you just remove the Assyrians? They stopped looking back. They stopped recalling the promises of God. They stopped recalling, church, the authority of God the majesty of God, the beauty of God, his sovereign hand over every, literally every millisecond of history that has ever been pinned, they stopped looking at that God. They stopped recalling his faithfulness and it drove them to a lack of faithfulness. Hear the warning of the text. They turned to the false gods of their time. They turned to the cultural norms of their time for we know about the history of Israel during that time. Short story they stopped looking it back. We had a saying that came out of the first of the year at Heights as we spent 16 weeks in the Psalms, if you remember. Started the year in the Psalms, ending the year in the Psalms on purpose. The first 16 weeks in the Psalms we spent, we came up with this saying, kind of started coming out where we said, you might recall this, seek his face before you seek his hand. Anybody remember that? A lot of sermons that came out, a lot of the liturgy that came out. Seek his face before you seek his hand. The Assyrians were only seeking his hand and not seeking his face. And the byproduct of that was annihilation. Or the Assyrians, the northern Israel, his people were doing the same things. The psalmist here at church is teaching us to seek his face before we seek his hand. To look to him. The psalmist here is pleading. I want you to catch this plea. He's saying, no, 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 Lord, like, you are the shepherd. You sat on the throne. You have been faithful. Look here. That's his face. That's the character of God. That's what we seek first. And upon recognition of who God is and what God is doing, then at that point, then we seek his hand. Then we turn and we say, God, turn towards us again. God, look at us again, God. If we could just see your face, Lord, show us your face again and again and again. And then he says, restore us, O Lord. So it's not until he looks to the face and at the face of God, then he's like, now, Father, now give us your hand. Now give us your hand of restoration. Now give us your hand of redemption. Now give us your hand of, rest, of, of, all, of salvation. Give it all over to us but not before he first said, you are the one who sits on the throne. You are sovereign. You are the good shepherd. God, I see your faithfulness. Just do what you've already been doing. Just give us a little bit more. Listen to me, church. There is no greater prayer than restore us, oh God. It's been five weeks since I've got to pastor you, so if I can be your pastor for just a moment, that would be great. Dude, I talked to six families this week before the end of business on Tuesday. And we took Thursday off, keep in mind. Six families this week before the end of business on Tuesday, they were all dealing with failing or failed marriages, unexpected death, addiction, adultery, depression, and anxiety before 9 o'clock on Tuesday. Let me just be clear in saying, no matter what you're experiencing in this room, and it is a lot, and I know it's a lot, and I'm still going to say what I'm about to say. I don't care where you're at in the room and what you're experiencing. You do not need to first pray for your circumstance or your situation. 
but you do need to pray for restoration. It doesn't matter what you're going through. A change in your circumstance or situation will not reveal the face of God to you, but salvation will. You can pray for a change of situation all you want, but until you pray for a change of heart, you ain't seeing his face. Right? You have to seek his face before you ever seek his hand. This is what the psalmist is doing right here. And so he's pleading with them, God, just do what you promise you're going to do. Let me ask you, family, what, are your, what does your prayer life reveal over the last 30 days? Have you prayed that you would experience the hand of God or have you prayed that you would literally see him face to face? What is your prayer life revealed? Seeking his face or seeking his hand, who do you better identify with? The tribes of northern Israel or the psalmist is penned Psalm 80? If you're anything like me, it's just a lot easier sometimes to pray for his hand, yeah? Praying to see his face takes a minute, which leads to the second point. You need to stay a little bit. You need to stay a while. All the imagery used here is that of the Egyptian uh, exile. I'll try to explain it on the way. Verse 8. He said, you brought a vine, that's Israel, uh, out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. Verse 9. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. He's talking about the people of Israel filling the land. Verse 10. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Verse 11. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river Euphrates. Verse 12. Why then, listen to me, why then have you broken down its walls? Here's another plea. Why then have you broken down its walls, broken down Israel's walls, so that all who pass along may pluck its fruit? He's saying, why are you allowing the enemy to literally eat us alive? God, what are you doing? Verse 13. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Here it is, verse 14. What does he say? Turn again. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven. What is he looking for? His hand or his face? His face. Turn and look at us again. Literally, turn and look at us again. What else is the psalmist doing? He's looking back before he can move forward. He's still looking back to the time of the exile and God's faithfulness over Israel in the midst of freeing them from Egyptian slavery. He doesn't just look at Joseph and say, well, what's that about? Like, you, you saved Joseph. What about me? Gosh, that's my prayer sometimes, isn't it? Can we be, is there too many new people in here? Can we be real for just a second? I'm like, why don't, what they're terrible people over here. Why did they get all that, right? Is that true? Oh. Hey, I'm going to just keep being myself, all right? Y'all, Work it out between you and Jesus, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't look at Joseph's scenario, situation, the story, and go, well, you saved Joseph. What about me? No, what does he do? He stays a while, church. He just starts recalling more. Gosh, this is what it looks like to aspire to, to advent, to long for the face of Jesus. Hey, you did it with Joseph. Yes and amen. Oh, and you did it with us in Egypt. Yes and amen. And God, you, you're tearing down our walls, but I know you tore down the walls of Jericho so we could invade Canaan. Yes and amen. He's just setting with the Father, setting with this shepherd, just allowing the shepherd to further move him further and further and further into deeper levels of Advent, deeper levels of longing, deeper levels of want, deeper levels of aspiring to see this God, no one else, right? He's saying, you've brought us 
out of Egypt. You have planted us among the nations. You have spread us out from sea to sea. You have done what you said you would do. What does that do when we make that proclamation, when we recall the hope of God that has been seen, been revealed from generations behind? It leads us to hope now, but you have to stay a while. Right? This ain't a prayer on your way to work while you're already mad at someone who cut you off in traffic. Read between the lines, guy. Oh, and by the way, Jesus, I just need to have a good day today. You're right? Like, that's not this prayer. This ain't that prayer. This is not what he's doing. What he's doing, he's setting in the midst of suffering, praying that God would lead him to a deeper level of advent. This is not the prayer of the weak church. This is a prayer of those who long. This is a prayer of people that have hope. This is advent. Verse 12, that longing. How long, God, are you going to let us be literally eaten alive? It's not a prayer of someone in despair. It's a prayer of someone who advents, someone who has hope and who has longing. Why, Lord? Gosh, when's the last time you prayed it? Why, Lord, is this happening? The prayer in and of itself reminds you, church, that we are a people of hope, not of despair. The prayer itself reveals hope, a people of advent. The psalmist is looking back, yes, but he's also sitting in and under the weight of this situation. What's interesting about this is that we live in a culture that says anything goes. Everyone can be accepted. You do you. Do your best. Hey, treat yourself. Let's go, you know? Whatever you want, you can have it. Until you show up with a little bit of suffering. And now all of a sudden the world doesn't know what to do with that. When you show up a little bit weak, when you show up a little bit too exposed, a little too transparent, a little too insecure until you're desperate. And then what do they do? We're just going to cancel them. Who are we canceling? Everybody. Well, what about the one that does all the canceling? What about whenever they get cancer? Do they now get canceled? No, they want grace and mercy, don't they? Right? Anything goes until you show up vulnerable. Anything goes until you show up a little unsure. I mean, it is literally no wonder that I had all these conversations with people experiencing anxiety and depression and substance abuse and divorce from Monday to Tuesday. Because they live in a culture that provides no out for them. Listen here, to avoid setting in the reality of how you are doing will only lead to greater unhealth, church. It only leads to greater acts of idolatry. It's okay to ask the Lord, how long, Lord? How long is this going to be happening? Derek Kinder wrote um, on the prayers of the Psalms, and he says this, a, a theologian pastor. He says, the very witness of these prayers in Scripture is a witness of God's understanding. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. Look, God didn't give us the Psalms so that we would just pretend to be okay all the time. God gave us the Psalms because he wants to hear our cries. Like he wrote them down so you can read the cries of the saints again and again and again, not so you would squander them. Desperation, church, is evidence of a heart that aches for Advent. It reveals a longing. John Piper on the Psalms wrote this, God wants your heart. If you don't hear anything else today, church, hear this. God wants your heart. God wants your heart. He's calling right now. The whole Bible, the whole Bible teaches truth and awakens emotions. Listen here. But the Psalms are a category of their own. 
Listen, they do not just awaken heart. Oh, they put it on the foreground. They do not just invite our emotions to respond to God's truth. They put our emotions on display. The Psalms are not just commanding church. They are contagious. We are not just listening to profound ideas and feelings. Oh, but we are living among them in the overflow. We touch wet pillows with tears. We hear and feel the unbashed cries of affliction, shame, regret, grief, anger, discouragement, and turmoil. But what makes all of this stunningly different from the sorrows of the world is that all of it, absolutely all of it, is experienced in relation to the totally sovereign God. You don't need to avoid your suffering, church. You need to invite the good shepherd in to experience it with you. This is what the psalmist is doing. To remove the real cries of uncertainty from the church, I would argue, would actually remove worship. To remove real voices of lament and longing from the church is to remove Advent, is to remove the longing, the hoping, the waiting. Think about this. The big idea is suffering leads to Advent. That means suffering leads to longing, waiting, looking forward to the promise. Right? The, the only long and the only wait, or sorry, you only long and you only wait and you only look forward to something if, in fact, you have hope. Other there is, otherwise, there's nothing to long for. There's nothing to hope in. There's nothing to Advent if you don't have hope. And so the very longing, the very waiting, the very aspiration reveals a hopeful people. If you allow the culture to silence the one suffering, you allow the culture to silence any proclamation of hope. Think about it. This is why they say, come as you are unless you come weak, because it exposes that what they're giving you isn't enough. So you gotta go outside of the system and you need someone to come from outside of the system into the system that can actually be worth hoping in. Someone that come from outside of the system and say, let's hope together, let's long together, let's advent together for something more, for something greater. Verse 12, he says, how long, O Lord? This is a plea of a saint in a season of advent. The plea, the cry in and of itself reveals hopeful intent, not despair. Hopefully that makes sense. Verse 14, he says, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven. Look down that I may see your face. Give me hope, Lord. Give us hope, Lord. And the good news of the gospel churches that he has. As we get into final point, look ahead to the promise. Verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, this people, your people, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you've made strong for yourself. Come on, somebody, it's getting there. Verse 16, they have burned it with fire, the vine. They have cut it down, the stock. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Verse 17, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Verse 19, restore us, third time. Restore us, O Lord. God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. The psalmist here crying out, just pleading with him, look down on us. You've done this. You've, you've tilled the land, you've set the vine, you've thrown out the seed, you've established the people, it's grown, you've put the right king in place. Remember, he's in a first season of Advent, he's recalling, as he says, the son and the son of man, he's recalling the Davidic kingdom. The King David is who he's speaking of. But he knows as he's writing this, as he's 
thinking about what's happened before as he's sitting with the father for a while, as he's sitting with the king, saying, let your hand be on the king. Give your blessing, the son of man who you've made strong. He's saying, that will restore us in his plea, church. He's still, now he's looking forward. Now there's a future. Now there's a hope. Now there's someone worth sending. And he would say in his first advent, God, send us the Messiah. Can you send him to us? Someone that will give the Assyrians everything that they deserve. This psalmist is finally looking forward. This Messiah, he knows, he's read Samuel, this Messiah will have a kingly rule that will never end. This Messiah will establish a kingdom that will be ever expanding as far as the eye can see, that he will gather a people to himself that will be innumerable, recall the book of Revelation we said in. He will establish a vine that will never be cut, nor will it ever be tampered with ever again. The psalmist is looking forward to a restoration and to a promise He's saying, God, we have seen, we have, sorry, God, we have been unfaithful. But Father, you are faithful. Simply be who you are. Continue being who you are. Well, there's only one king who is sufficient, church, to destroy the Assyrians and to annihilate all the evil. And it's not King David. It is King Jesus. That is who we advent. His name is Jesus. He has looked down, church, you better believe he has shown his face. He has revealed his power. He is the promised son. He is the one who sits at the right hand of God. He is the promised son of man. And how does he do it? How does he bring restoration? How does he show his face? But what, how does he do it? Through suffering. How does he bring purification that they ask for? Through suffering. How is it that he can annihilate the enemy? By becoming annihilated himself. This is not a king that is unlike any other king. This is a king who does not send his soldiers in the battle, but he himself goes before them in death. Suffering is at the heart of everything we believe in the gospel. So would you stand with me as we make this final proclamation? Let me read Hebrews to you and usher us into communion here. The team's coming back up. Hebrews chapter one says this, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Look here, church, that son has come, amen? Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Listen to him now. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, that is, after going to the cross and experiencing an incredible amount of suffering, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is far more excellent than theirs, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Listen here, church. The one who is invisible, that the psalmist is crying out to, has made himself visible. The son whom the psalmist longs to see has come. The one who has hid his face, church, has shown his face. The one who is the psalmist is begging for restoration and salvation, has come to bring restoration and has come to bring salvation. How did he do it? Through suffering. Lives a life of perfection. 
and then goes to the cross and dies in our place as our substitute, taking upon himself the death that we deserve. I'm not gonna try to sell you anything here, church. We deserve far worse than what the northern tribes of Israel experienced from the Assyrians. For everything that appears to be dark and destructive and leads you to question as you read through the Old Testament and the Psalms, I need you to know that's exactly what Jesus experienced when he went to the cross. Not only did he experience those effects, but he also experienced all the emotions, all the hurt, all the damage that's ever came out of those moments in time. He's not just he who became sin. He didn't just become sin. He experienced every single effect of every sin that could ever happen for all of humanity's time, all of it. Not just the initial act, but every ripple effect of every piece of sin that's ever happened, that's what comes against Jesus. He knows suffering. He can identify with you in it, sits with you in it as a good shepherd sets with his sheep. And at the same time, I want to be clear, he is perfectly sovereign. And every millisecond of your suffering that has ever happened has happened so that it would point you to this Jesus. It would point you, it would lead you to Advent to hope, to long, to aspire for someone and something better than what you have here. And he's the only one that's gonna be able to meet that need for you. His name is Jesus. If you have not today cried out the same cry as this psalmist, let me invite you to do so today. Father, restore us. Father, would you restore me? As we transition into communion, hopefully you were able to grab communion cups on the way in, if you were not able, I know it's a big crowd, you can make your way up to the front and grab those uh, cups. The Apostle Paul says this of communion before you start to open those cups. The Apostle Paul said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, church, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is in and through communion, church, that we proclaim the suffering of Christ. And the reality that while we will experience suffering here as Christians, my gosh, there is a day promised, church, where we will never experience suffering ever again. This king will establish his kingdom, he will establish his throne, and he will establish his vine, his people, and it will never be taken from him forevermore. Amen? Amen. The table is set. Those of you that are saints, feel free to partake.